Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Today's business leaders are saying that sustainability and diversity metrics are key to the way they do business. But what does that look like in practice? Stick around until the end of this episode to hear more. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Those four officers were literally on him for nine minutes, and none of them showed they have a heart or soul. This is not just murder, but a hate crime. I still can't pull myself together to how he is calling my grandma a name. I believe my grandmother was right there with open arms saying, come home, baby. You shouldn't feel this pain. No one should feel this pain. That was Brooke Williams. She's George Floyd's niece. And she spoke at her uncle's funeral service at the Fountain of Praise Church in Houston on Tuesday. Floyd's funeral is one of the major moments of news and reckoning that we'll be talking about in today's Week in Review Roundtable. And our roundtable includes Greg Bluestein. He covers politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and writes for the paper's Political Insider blog. He's also occasional host of Georgia Public Radio's show Political Rewind, and he joins us from Atlanta. Greg, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us from Washington is Jane Koston, senior politics reporter for Vox. Jane, welcome to On Point. Thanks so much for having me. And from Houston, Maria Reeve. She's managing editor for the Houston Chronicle. Maria, it's great to have you as well. Hello. Thanks for having me. So let's start uh, in Houston, Maria, if we could. And can you just describe um, the impact that George Floyd's funeral had uh, on the city and and moments that really stayed with you? It was uh, an amazing outpouring of um, emotion and feeling uh, welcoming back uh, one of Houston's own. Uh, first uh, memorial on Monday, you know, thousands of people came out uh, in heat and uh, stood in line um, with masks and in distance to uh, to say goodbye. And then Tuesday in the private service that um, some thought, you know, that uh, space would not be filled, but it was with people who came out to say goodbye. So uh, a moment for Houston, uh, which found itself in this uh, spotlight um, for the death of George Floyd. Mm. And Greg and Jane, I'll turn to you as well here, because this was this is one of those moments that while it was definitely focused in Houston, um, people around the nation watched it with... um, I don't even know how to describe it. heavy hearts, uh, even as they also celebrated George Floyd's life. So how did it, how did all that land in Atlanta, Greg? Yeah, they watched it with heavy hearts and rapt attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and it landed at a really fraught political moment in Georgia, um, you know, doing, doing a week of protest and primary here. And, um, you know, you saw candidates take a take a break even republican candidates who might not agree with the protesters message take a break from campaigning uh, they didn't put out press releases they didn't tweet they didn't, they didn't do any activity on social media uh, it was sort of a social media blackout as the nation's attention and atlanta's attention turned um to the legacy hmm. and jane before i turn to you let's just hear another moment uh from the funeral service uh this is reverend al sharpton he called on the families of um, other Black Americans who had been have been killed uh, by police who were there uh, in the, in the Fountain of Praise Church. He called on them to stand up and be recognized. The mother of Trayvon Martin, will you stand? The mother of Eric Garner, will you stand? The sister of Botham John, will you stand? The family of Pamela Turner right here in Houston, will you stand? The father of Michael Brown from Ferguson, Missouri, will you stand? The father of Ahmed Aubrey, will you stand? All of these families came 
to stand with this family because they know better than anyone else the pain they will suffer. That's the Reverend Al Sharpton in Houston on Tuesday. Jane, your thoughts? I I think that that is such a telling and deeply moving moment that this community of people has formed a community that no one wanted to be a part of. Um, I was thinking about Botham Jean, who was shot by a police officer who allegedly walked into the wrong home, mm-hmm. and a father of Ahmed Arbery, who was murdered in February, but only now are we starting to get to this point with an investigation. This is a community in which no one wants to belong. This is a group in which no one wants membership. And I was so struck by that moment and so struck by their willingness to come to this funeral. Um, you know, you asked about the impact that uh, Floyd's funeral had across the country. And I was amazed by finding out that the New York Stock Exchange had a moment of silence hmm. uh, in honor of George Floyd and what this moment has meant to so many people around the world. But for those families in particular, it is another person who has entered into their terrible fraternity. And it, it's, it's, it's almost overwhelming to contemplate, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, so I feel like, um, I'll be perfectly frank with the three of you. I feel like no, I can't really find the analysis that matches the import of this moment for this country um, because you hear the voices of families who've endured so much pain for so long and perhaps finally we as a nation are beginning to uh, – this is what we're seeing, that we're, we're rallying around um, the call for an end to that pain – and to that, you know, to that, to that point. I mean, Jane, you talked about nobody wants to be in this, in this fraternity of families who've endured such loss. Also, uh, this week, in fact, the very next day, in went on Wednesday in Washington, George Floyd's brother, uh, the day after um, his brother was laid to rest, Philonese Floyd testified before the House Judiciary Committee, saying that he hopes his brother does not become another name on a t-shirt. And he described what it was like to see his brother die um, under the knee of a police officer. The man who took his life, who suffocated him for eight minutes and 46 seconds, he still called him sir as he begged for his life. I can't tell you the kind of pain you feel when you watch something like that. When you watch your big brother who you looked up to your whole entire life, die, die begging for his mom. I'm tired. I'm tired of pain. So, Jane, I'll start with you here on this. How did that go over with the Judiciary Committee? Um, I think that there was it was a deeply moving moment. I keep using that term, but that's the only way I can describe it. And you saw um, Republicans and Democrats talking about the depravity that they saw in the video of Floyd's murder. And I think that this has been a moment, it's challenging because sometimes politics gets in the way of policy. Mm-hmm. And we've seen time and time again that the debates that we'll talk about through the rest of the show are all offshoots off of this policy discussion. But at its root, we are talking about a man who was murdered by an agent of the state. Mm-hmm. You know, And we have heard that time and time again. And we've seen it happen to African-Americans. And we've also seen it happen to white Americans. Um, and we've seen it happen. And we've seen the people who commit these acts, agents of the state, be protected again from the laws that they are supposed to enforce. And so I think that you've seen Republicans like Senator Tim Scott, but also Republicans like uh, James Sensenbrenner, a Republican from Wisconsin, saying that you know, the the film, the footage of Floyd's murder burned in his soul. And you are seeing Republicans and Democrats increasingly speaking out against the you know the use of no knock warrants, um, as what took place in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, to in the murder of Breonna Taylor. You've seen the inc- you know the desire to increase the number of body police cameras. But moreover, you're seeing from Republicans and Democrats a real willingness to talk about overarching reform of police, not even you know what types of reform, but acknowledging that reform is necessary. And it's been interesting because a lot of this, and it's, it's difficult to say how much it's coming as people are watching 
police brutality occurring against people who are protesting police brutality. And that's been so interesting to see. And it's, you know, it's in some ways heartening um, to see the concern, but it's, you know, all of this stems from a man being murdered by a police officer who kneeled on his neck for nearly nine minutes. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that I just can't quite get past. Yeah. I mean, there are discussions of what might be possible and changes at the federal level. But in addition, I think one of the things that's markedly different about this moment, and Maria, I'll turn to you, is the speed with which we're seeing um, perhaps measurable uh, steps towards change um, at the state and local level. I mean, for example, mm-hmm. at George Floyd's funeral, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner declared that he's going to sign an executive order banning chokeholds in the city. Yes, and he did that to, uh, if you watched the funeral and you heard him make that declaration, uh, with each statement, his voice rose and the crowd responded. So he did sign that executive order that bans the use of chokeholds and expands misconduct oversight. Um, and also, uh, uh, enforcing de-escalation techniques and, uh, uh, commanding uh, officers to intervene when they see misconduct. So, so those things are happening. Um, and uh, the executive order uh, was signed and goes into effect. To uh, and he has the support of uh, uh, Chief uh, Acevedo as mm. well. Mm. So I think that there are there is intent, there is willingness, there is action. Uh, I think, you know, what remains to be seen is how this is put into practice. Right. I mean, that is that, that is always going to be the big question, as Jane was saying earlier, that, that politics and policy uh, are tough work, um, even after the surge of, of feeling and desire that we see in these protests. I mean, and Greg, how, how, where is Atlanta in that process? Yeah, Atlanta's in the middle of a reckoning, too, in the state of Georgia. I mean, it's a Republican-led state. Um, but there have been protests, and really, you mentioned Ahmed Arbery um, uh, shooting death down in the area around Brunswick. Um, he, was, he was an unarmed jogger who was shot to death by former agents, uh, uh, allegedly by a former agent of the state, um, a former investigator. Um, and that already started to shape politics in Georgia and lead to uh, rising calls for a hate crimes law. Mm-hmm. Georgia is one of only about four states without a hate crimes law. Ours was struck down as unconstitutional 16 years ago. Lawmakers go back to a session, right. and Ahmed Arbery's mom wrote a passionate op-ed well, calling for lawmakers to take up that action. Greg, stand by. We'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. In a recent episode, series CEO Mindy Luber says sustainability has reached a board level. Look, if you're an agricultural company and you're not thinking about water risk, you're an apparel company, you're not thinking about risk to your cotton crop around the world. If you are a bank and not thinking about stranded assets of fossil fuels, you're not probably doing your due diligence. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We are talking about yet another tremendous week in the news. And I'm joined today by Maria Reeve. She's managing editor for the Houston Chronicle, and she's with us from Houston. Jane Koston is senior politics reporter at Vox. She's joining us from Washington. And Greg Bluestein covers politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and writes the paper's political insider blog. He's with us from Atlanta. And Greg, just before the break, since we were running out of time there, I think I had to cut you off. Uh, and I wanted to give you a chance to finish your thought because you were talking about how um, uh, Georgia had a, a hate crimes law that was deemed unconstitutional. What was going next steps that were going to happen after that? Yeah, there's a movement now to to uh, pass that, that that statute, which imposes 
new criminal penalties on people who have been proven to to, to commit crimes based on on racial bias or other biases. But look, advocates say that that's just the start. Um, and, and Georgia might get a hate crimes law in the next few weeks, but advocates say uh, there needs to be more sweeping action, just like they're saying around the nation that that, that you know this is not a, a simple solution. There's mm. there's no one step that will that will start righting these wrongs, and they're calling. For, for many steps, such as the end of stand your ground laws and civil arrest statutes that that people have been using um, to to perpetuate some of these tragedies, and 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 they say, look, the tragedy is that it took graphic video of of these sorts of of, of violent incidents um, to to wake up lawmakers and really society to things that were happening for, as we all know, for decades. Mm. Well, so and here's where things get even more real, right? Because of the the push pull in politics around any one of these ideas that we've just mentioned, uh, let alone calls for sweeping like across the board reform in law enforcement. But we, we're seeing the beginnings of that, for example, at the federal level this week, top Democrats from both houses of Congress unveiled a police reform bill. They did so on Monday. And here's California Democrat Senator Kamala Harris talking about it. We have confused having safe communities with hiring more cops on the street, as though that is the way to achieve safe communities, when in fact, the real way to achieve safe and healthy communities is to invest in those communities. Jane, let me turn to you for a couple of things here. First of all, how comprehensive is this bill um, right now? So it's it's quite comprehensive. I think, though, that there's been a challenge among Democrats and then among progressives talking about what they can actually get done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are, you know, sometimes when you put out a bill, you put you are putting out legislation that is intended to send a message. You're sending you know, putting out legislation that you are saying, like, we are taking this issue very seriously. But I think that there's been a sense among a lot of Democrats and a lot of people who are further left than the Democratic Party that this is just that. This is a signal. This is a signaling device. It isn't truly serious. And so, and it, but it's interesting, though, because I think that what is contained within the legislation, especially the conversations to be had about qualified immunity, are extremely important to be had. Um, and especially because I think that there's a sense that this is the time to get this done. Um, you know, making it easier to sue officers and by banning chokeholds, though I would note that several states have already banned the use of chokeholds by police officers, and that has not yet stopped police officers from using them, as in New York State. Um, But I think that, you know, what you've seen from Republicans, which I find interesting, is the idea that, you know, ending qualified immunity is going too far, that some of the Democrats, in the views of many activists, very moderate reform suggestions are going too far and won't make it to the finish line. Right. Well, so so let's talk a little bit more about that divide between enacting policy and politics, especially in an election year, because you were talking, Jane, there about how uh, progressive Democrats who are further left than, say, Democratic leadership in Congress, viewing the bill as, as a signal. I've, we were also hearing over the course of this week um, other Democrats just sh- sh- wanting to tap the brakes a little bit on how these reform efforts are being discussed, right? I was looking at Jim Clyburn, for example, saying using phrases like defund, defund the police isn't helping right now. And other, even other members of the Congressional Black Caucus saying, you know, hey, like, let's talk about this in a different way so as to not – um, allow the politics of of a certain set of words or language obscure the goal here. Is, I mean, was that pushback happening within the Democratic Party, Jane? It was happening a little bit. I think that there is a conversation to be had among Democrats, but it's 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 worth noting a couple of things here. I think that there have been Democrats working on this issue for several years, going back to the last administration, to going back to 2014, 2015. And when we think about what the reforms that Democrats um, under President Obama tried to put forward in 2014, 2015, many of them are very similar. I would, though, say that qualified immunity has come forth as being more of an issue because it's become such a concern. Um, the ways in which police officers are in some ways protected from the consequences of their own actions. But 
this is a debate that's happening. It happens to be a debate in which I think for many Democrats, there's a sense of, you know, we can get Republicans on board on this. Um, you know, Chuck Schumer said that, you know, this the nation will not let this issue fade away. I assure my Republican friends, but you're hearing from Republicans saying, look, we're ready to come to the table. But again, that challenge of talking about this in an election year where you're talking about, you know, you're talking about one a lot of ideas that have been promoted by activists that are kind of outside of the political circles in which Democrats are attempting to exist. Keep in mind that many Democrats need to go home to suburban districts that want to hear about police reform, but are concerned about what police reform might actually look like. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a challenge, you know, there, there's a little bit of a challenge here to both come up with legislation that they could get through this Congress, um, more importantly, this Senate, which is still Republican controlled, but also meet the demands of not just activists, but also everyday Americans who are deeply concerned about this. You know, when you talk about qualified immunity, or you talk about police reform, and you talk about ending the militarization of police, a militarization that under the Obama administration was turned back in some ways, but the Trump administration, I, you know, restarted the programs that permitted local police departments to receive military grade equipment, you are, you know, this is a bit of a challenge, mm -hmm. but I think it's one that Democrats recognize is, you know, it, it seems so strange to talk about this in terms of politics. You know, we all want to think that there are ideas and policies that are above politics, but I will say that Democrats think that this is a solid issue for them. I think that the entire debate over defunding the police or abolishing the police is one that's being had among some circles of progressives. And but then occasionally I think that in comparison to, uh, you know, if you remember back a couple of years ago when Republicans were talking about abolishing, replacing Obamacare, where that became a signaling device yeah. more so than an actual mm -hmm. policy proposal. As you'll recall, we have not yet abolished and or replaced Obamacare. So I think that this is an interesting challenge for Democrats because there's, you know, the question of what they can actually get done, mm -hmm. what people want to get done, what would actually reduce instances of not just police killings, but also police brutality yeah. more broadly. And, you know, what, again, is a good idea that would all that would make thing make, you know, the murder of George Floyd not happen, mm -hmm. especially because um, this is all happening. In, and it's not just George Floyd. It's happening at a time in which people are more distrusting of institutions, including yeah. the police. And those, you know, those institutions we've seen time and time again have been running roughshod over the rights of American citizens. So, so Jane, let me I want to be able to bring Maria and Greg back in here because because there's a lot that you said about sort of the the political nuance of this moment. And I'm thinking particularly when you said about how uh, there's the question of like how to find a bill that can be that can get through this Congress and then presumably get through this Congress with a veto proof majority, because we have to say that the language uh, that uh, that activists may be using around their calls for law enforcement reform, um, you know, the the most powerful Republican in the country right now, President Trump is responding pretty uh, pretty pointedly to that. So here's the president on Monday. We won't be defunding our police. We won't be dismantling our police. We won't be disbanding our police. We won't be ending our police force in a city. I guess you might have some cities who want to try, but. It's going to be very, uh, very sad situation if they did, because uh, people aren't going to be protected. Maria, you want to respond to that? I think that, I mean, particularly in Texas, uh, we are not hearing that that sort of uh, call for disbanding police. In fact, um, the city council approved uh, a budget that increases the uh, budget for Houston Police Department by about 2%. So, you know, the, those kinds of uh, actions are taking place. Um, what I do think people are looking for is um, how are you safer? How is this department uh, charged with keeping uh, its citizens, all of its citizens safe, um, accomplishing that? And so, you know, you're seeing calls for more money for uh, mental health uh, mm -hmm. responses and more money for housing and education, jobs, minimum wage, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, as far as uh, 
calls for uh, defunding or disbanding police departments, particularly here in Texas, um, not hearing um, calls for that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the truth is, is the real conversations happening in cities is much more nuanced uh, and textured sure. than than what we hear sort of reduced or distilled down to particular words or notions. I mean, Greg, jump in here. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that speaks to the challenges that, that Democrats face in conservative-leaning states like Georgia and Texas, where Republicans are already weaponizing the term, much like they did with the Green New Deal, um, you know, equating defunding the police with disbanding the police. And certainly there are some advocates who say that police, you know, law enforcement agencies should be disbanded. But in the general sense of the term, many are also calling for, you know, scale back steps like redirecting funding to social services and education, not eliminating police departments. And already you're seeing that rhetoric be used by Republicans here in Georgia saying Democratic candidates want to, you know, want to end police agencies. Um, and so Democrats are really facing, uh, you know, having to navigate a, a tough line in conservative states, conservative leading states on how to answer that issue. Mm. Well, we will obviously in the days, weeks and months to come continue to talk about this question of how uh, reform efforts are progressing in the United States. But uh, I want to also uh, talk about another major event that happened um, this week. And first of all, let's just hear from listener, On Point listener Michael from Detroit, who said that this week seemed calmer to him. Uh, but then Michael said he found out that a Vallejo, California police officer had shot and killed a 22, 22-year-old Latino man. And here's what our listener had to say. I've lost words. I'm a veteran. I'm a trained mental health professional. I love people in my community so much. And yet it seems like there's so much hate and division everywhere that it doesn't matter what people are doing until there's actual reform and lead bullets get taken out of the police's hands and police officers go to prison for life for choking, for murdering, just for murdering innocent people, for murdering guilty people. It's not even their job to murder guilty people. A jury of their peers' job. That's On Point listener Michael from Detroit. Now, the witnessing of uh, police violence against individual Americans has definitely brought people out onto the streets. And then, Jane, as you said earlier, in addition to that, we saw police pushback against those very protesters. And one of the most... uh, Memorable, sadly memorable moments came when um, police from various agencies pushed back peaceful protesters in Washington in order to make way for the president to have his photo op at St. John's Church. And General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was seen in his fatigues walking alongside the president on that day in advance of that photo op. He received a huge amount of criticism and pushback. And this week, General Milley, in a pre-recorded graduation speech to students at the National Defense University, he apologized for that. So let's listen. I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. As a commissioned uniformed officer, it was a mistake that I have learned from, and I sincerely hope we all can learn from it. We who wear the cloth of our nation come from the people of our nation, and we must hold dear the principle of an apolitical military that is so deeply rooted in the very essence of our republic. Jane, I found this to be a remarkable and deeply important moment that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff had to stand up and apologize and also remind himself, everyone, the president, that the military is supposed to be apolitical. I mean, and we've had a a chorus of voices of senior senior, current and former military leaders say the same thing in the past few days. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's been it's been really something. And I think that it's. It's one of those moments that I think for many people will feel more notable than it may actually be politically, mm. because I think that there's a sense for many people um, that you know, the outspoken um, comments made by, say, Jim Mattis, who served as Trump's uh, first defense secretary, or even from General Milley, I think that there is a sense to, I think one of the challenges with this particular presidential administration 
is that there's a there's a real sense for some people of a the example of the sunk cost fallacy yeah. that at this point you're in you're in you're in for a penny you're in for a pound and so i think that for many people for whom this would be you know if this had happened 4 years ago that this would have been a a lightning strike of change in popular opinion particularly people who are supportive of this particular administration it may not be because there's a sense that you know that this has been priced in but i do think for people you know again it's so strange to talk about politics at a moment like this but one of the challenges trump faces for his re-election bid is um there was a terrific piece in cnn uh, earlier this week saying that you know yes he has incredibly high approval within the republican party but that's just it in order to win re-election he's going to have to get people who are outside of the republican party outside of even you know the Republican, I would say that Trump's base is even smaller than the Republican Party. I think there's a difference between the people who voted for Trump in 2016 and the people who think of themselves as still part of that firm base, that that firm unwavering base. But I think that statements like those made by Mattis and Milley will mean a lot to those independent voters who hmm. leaned Trump in 2016 but might lean Biden in 2020. If you'll recall that Polling showed that if you really disliked both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016, you were more likely to vote for Trump. Those numbers have changed dramatically when it comes to the contest between Trump and Biden. So I think that this is one of those moments where the people who you know, who are deeply supportive of the president, this is priced in. You know, the idea that these military elites aren't supportive of the president, it's kind of priced into how they think about this. But I do think for independent voters and for people who are outside of those specific circles, having a general apologize for the actions taken. And even, you know, when you have um, Senator Tom Cotton trying to rephrase those arguments to say that, you know, oh, what he meant was he was supposed to be in full dress uniform, not in fatigues. Yeah. You can see that there's a challenge here for people who are most supportive of the president and trying to get him reelected. Well, when we come back, we're going to uh, move forward and talk about a couple of other stories uh, of extreme note this week, including Greg voting in Georgia. So hang in there. Okay, Greg, we'll be right back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It is the Friday Week in Review Roundtable, and I'm joined today by Jane Koston. She's senior politics reporter at Vox. She's with us from Washington. Maria Reeve is with us from Houston. She's managing editor for the Houston Chronicle. And Greg Bluestein joins us from Atlanta. He covers politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and writes the paper's Political Insider blog. And Greg, let's just listen to a moment to the voices of frustration from some Georgia voters. We feel like something funny happened. Did they just all want us here? Did they want us to get frustrated and not vote? What was the reasons why? I don't know. You don't know if this is just negligence or if this is deliberate. You don't know where it's coming from. It's just really bad all around. Voices of some Georgia voters there on Tuesday. And that was, by the way, courtesy of WXIA. TV because those those voters had to brave extremely long lines waiting for hours to uh, to cast their votes, um, obviously all fearing their safety and well-being because we still are in the midst of a pandemic. So, so Greg, what happened in Georgia on Tuesday? It was a meltdown. Um, it, it was a meltdown that, that that bipartisan lawmakers have accepted. It said it was a meltdown. It was a debacle. There's a lot of finger pointing. There's a lot of blame to go around, but. Essentially, what happened was we had a new voting system at a time of a pandemic. We had officials, even though um, the, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and others have been warning for, for, for months about 
problems and preparations and ill-trained staff workers and issues with, with fewer polling sites and more crowded polling locations, um, they were not ready in, in parts of Metro Atlanta. There were obviously parts of the state where things went off without a hitch, but in many precincts in Metro Atlanta, predominantly African-American precincts, there was overcrowding of the polls and you had people waiting in line, and this is no joke, for eight hours. Um, some waiting past midnight. So in a sense, it was awe-inspiring to see people who were that committed to exercise their right to vote who waited that long. Um, but in another sense, of course, it was devastating to see that that's what it took to vote. And when lawn chairs are accessories to voting, people were bringing chairs because they knew they would be sitting there for the long haul. When you have to bring a chair to vote, then there, there's a problem. Well, and also, I think, uh, was the problem exacerbated when I've, I read that um, many people who who wanted um, to vote by mail never re- even received their mail-in ballots? And so they had to end up going yes. to the polls physically? Yeah, it's it's a strange sort of um, like, irony, I guess is the word. But you, you, despite all these problems, Georgia has record turnout because m- about 1.2 million people voted early. Um, so many people were able to vote by absentees, but still tens of thousands more uh, never received their absentee ballot or received it too late to get it postmarked by uh, 7 p.m. on election night. Um, so many of those people couldn't vote absentee even if they wanted to. Um, and so we're stuck in line for long periods. And of course, because there's also the rollout of a new statewide voting system, a $100 million or so voting system, um, there was technical and malfunctions there. And so you, we're accustomed to seeing slow moving lines in, in, in crowded precincts. But what was so hard to witness was lines that didn't move at all. Uh-huh. I interviewed an 80-year-old woman at front of a line in a high school in, in heavily Democratic DeKalb County who sat in line at the front of the line for three hours, not moving at all because they had already run out of provisional ballots. And the poor folks at the precinct, you know, the, the, the poll workers couldn't get the machines to work and couldn't get any help from the state or the county um, to get those technical errors fixed. And that was a snapshot of really what was happening in dozens of precincts around Metro Atlanta. So this is absolutely a very visceral example of how the pandemic is coursing through every aspect of American life, right? Because there was this big expansion of, as you were saying, uh, of mail-in voting. And, I, and I'm seeing here that that Richard Barron, who's the elections director for Fulton County, um, which includes Atlanta, he's been quoted as saying, um, what we were asked to do is do absentee by mail, and we still had to do our full complement of Election Day infrastructure. So saying that that voting uh, elections officials basically had to run two systems of voting simultaneously, and that was part of the problem. But but Greg, I mean, the pandemic isn't going away anytime soon. What does this foretell for what might happen in November? Yeah, well, this was the dry run for November. And, um, and of course, Georgia was the home to a heated debate over voting rights in the 2018 gubernatorial election between Stacey Abrams and, and Governor Brian Kemp, who at the time was the Secretary of State in charge of, of overseeing the election. Um, so there are major fears that, that, that we could see when turnout explodes, right? There'll be much higher turnout in November than there were for, for, for this primary. So when turnout soars, um, if, if Georgia couldn't handle um, you know, a, a primary level turnout, what will happen in November when there's presidential ballot, presidential race on the ballot, as well as two U.S. Senate races and, and, and several competitive House races? I mean, there's a lot of fear and concern here. There's also time for lawmakers and politicians to try to get it right. The, the legislative session uh, reconvenes on Monday after a pandemic hiatus, and there's several uh, legal complaints moving through the court system, and there's executive action that, that state officials can take. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of different avenues they can work on. Right now, there's a lot of blame gaming going mm. on, but voters don't care as much about the blame game. They want, they want to know that, that they won't have to wait in eight-hour lines. That yeah. They won't have to suffer through these, these, these mechanical malfunctions. Or they want to know that they'll get their absentee ballots um, in time to actually vote. And that, that's the rub. We're, that's where the rubber meets the road here in Georgia. Well, yeah, people want their votes to be counted. So, Maria, I, are, are <laughs> looking forward to November. Is, is Texas saying that's not going to happen here? Like, is Texas ready to to smoothly um, pull off the logistics and, and uh, mechanics of, uh, of voting uh, in November? Mm, well, well, we'll see. <laughs> um, we had, uh, you know, during the primary earlier this year, we saw similar lines in, uh, you know, heavily Democratic areas, uh, 
of Houston, um, Af- African American neighborhoods where people reported, you know, the same thing: late night lines. They were standing. There were fewer machines. Um, that kind of thing. So. Uh, I think that remains to be seen. Texas is also fighting over expanding voting by mail. Mm. Um, there, uh, there was a group that sued to expand voting by mail um, based on, you know, a lack of immunity to coronavirus or, or uh, any reason really, but uh, state courts uh, beat that back. So um there's a lawsuit continues at the federal level to try to expand uh, voting by mail in Texas. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Mm. Well, let's shift gears here slightly and talk about um, what lies ahead in for the immediate future regarding the pandemic, which is still with us. Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, was on ABC's Good Morning America on Wednesday. He said he was worried about protesters gathering across uh, the country um, and the perhaps chance of increased transmission due to that. He also um, refuted a World Health Organization official who had claimed that the novel coronavirus is not spread by people who are asymptomatic. What happened the other day is that a member of the WHO was saying that transmission from an asymptomatic person to an uninfected person was very rare. They walked that back because there's no evidence to indicate that's the case. And Dr. Fauci is right. The WHO did indeed walk that uh, back and continues to recommend uh, that uh, people maintain safe social distance. But Maria, we're in the summer now. We're heading into the summer and states are continuing to move forward with their their phased-in relaxation of their lockdown rules. How are things going in Texas regarding unwinding from lockdowns in the places that it was instituted and infection rates? Right. So uh, reopening of businesses uh, began around uh, May 1st uh, and some some uh, leaders say it may have happened too quickly because we are seeing uh, an uptick in cases uh, in many parts of the state, Houston included. Uh, so uh, the Harris County uh, uh, leader, Lena Hidalgo, she has uh, issued more warnings about, uh, you know, making sure people continue to uh distance themselves, wear their masks, uh, and, you know, understand that this isn't over uh, and that these troubling trends are continuing. And we do see an increase in cases and hospitalizations um, uh, so that people need to uh, be aware and and understand that while uh, businesses and uh, some of these uh Organizations have reopened that it, uh, it may have happened too quickly um, and that some cities may be at risk of an outbreak that mm. they aren't able to handle. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, th- we, we spoke with Dr. Ashish Jha this week, um, who's a leading public health expert, and he talked about the fact that the um, the infection rate, the daily new infection numbers are probably just going to bounce bounce along on this plateau nationwide for a while. And, and we're not going to be able to or it'll be more challenging to bring those numbers, continue to bring those numbers down. I mean, Greg, is that what what's being seen in Georgia? Since Georgia is sort of ground zero for some of the aggressive reopening of the economy. But way back in late April, Governor Kemp uh, uh, rolled back restrictions on, on barbershops and tattoo parlors and bowling alleys. And it was a, it was a fraught moment. Um, and there was a lot of ner- ner- nervousness and anxiety and fears that it would lead to a, a second wave. It hasn't yet. Uh, the, the coronavirus cases in Georgia are still elevated, but they are, they are steady. Um, the number of hospitalizations is down. But it's strange because on Thursday, the governor rolled back um, his shelter-in-place restrictions for people over 65, but it was the same day we had a, a record, a, a high number um, in, in coronavirus cases, the highest since early May. So there's still concerns that, that, that Georgia is moving uh, too fast, and just like they're echoing the rest of the nation where we've seen um, some increase in cases. 
Mm. Well, uh, I want to just spend a quick minute talking about, uh, let's move away from COVID, although, quite frankly, nothing is actually moving away from COVID. It's all Mm -hmm. related. But Jane, I just want to talk very briefly uh, about the economy, um, because the Fed has announced that it's going to continue low interest rates. Uh, We now can officially say that a recession began uh, in February, although some economists predict that we might see a third quarter recovery. Uh, the market seemed to be kind of jittery about this whole thing, and there's still mass unemployment. So how should we be thinking about um, all this economic news this week? I mean, I think that they're actually, in my view, the economic news is the fact that there are millions of, American, of Americans who don't have jobs and that many of the jobs that have returned have actually been the jobs where, you know, for a lot of Americans, you may have seen emails, say, from your gym. Mm-hmm. where during the coronavirus pandemic, the gym shut down and they had to fire the trainers. And then they were able to get a PPP loan and they were able to rehire a lot of those trainers. So a lot of the jobs that are coming are not necessarily new jobs. They're the jobs that people had before that they lost, and then they got back. But that still leaves out millions of people. And that's millions of people who are not buying consumer goods. They're not buying refrigerators or ovens, um, which is why you'll, you'll notice that the you know when you look at consumer spending on big household appliances, that's gone way down. You know, spending on cars is not yet back where it was because there was a massive drop, even though car dealerships have been open this entire time. And so I think that for most Americans, um, you know, it's challenging because as as you know, we've been reminded many times, the stock market and the economy are not necessarily the same thing. Not and what at the all. stock market responds to and what economists respond to aren't necessarily the same thing that everyday Americans experience. And I think that um, there was a terrific piece in BuzzFeed this week talking about how you know, we're currently in the in a massive jet that is floating, but the engines have died. Mm. And so I think that there will be more economic pain coming. And what that economic pain looks like on Wall Street and what that economic pain looks like for stockbrokers, it's going to be very different from what that economic pain looks like for folks who thought that they might be able to get a new job. But as small businesses try to come back and can't, and as you know, as individuals who are doing hiring stop hiring, I think that that's going to be a really big challenge. Yeah. And it, it's been funny though watching the stock market. You know, the stock market appears to be only appeased by the actions of the old gods. Where you know, for a lot of people, they're watching this thinking, you know, how are people profiting essentially off of my pain? Especially, you know, you're seeing. Hertz trying to, you know, which has gone bankrupt, trying to sell off its stocks. And it's it's very confusing. Right. To say the least, right? I think that's very well put. Now, listen, we've got enough time to, I can give you each about 30 seconds. I do want to know what you're looking forward uh, or can keep your eye on in terms of the coming uh, week or week. So kind of a headline version here. Maria, what about you? What are you looking ahead to? Um, you know, this week uh, on June 19th marks the uh, day that former slaves, uh, about two years after they were freed, found out in Galveston, Texas, that they were. So that day is, is significant. What I'm interested in is uh, the president's uh, rally scheduled uh, for Tulsa on mm-hmm. that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, interested in what the fallout, I mean, we've already seen some of the reaction to the announcement of it, but interested in seeing what what that will bring uh, for people who both attend and people who are offended by it's even happening. Yeah. So yeah. I'll be curious about that. Absolutely. Uh, and so will, I think, millions of other people as well. Greg, your your headline of what you're going to be keeping your eye on in the next week? Yeah, I think Georgia will be back in the national spotlight as lawmakers return to the Capitol and they have to address, A, the voting crisis, the, the, the debacle of, of, of this past week. And then secondly, what to do to promote civil justice and racial equality in the wake of of, of, of the tragedies and, and, and the police brutalities. Um, so do they pass a, a, a uh, hate crimes act? Do they take further steps? That will be the question that we'll be looking at over the next week. Yeah. And Jane, you get the last 30 seconds here. What are you keeping your eye on? I'm keeping an eye, my eye on Louisville. Um, the police officers who shot and killed Breonna Taylor have not yet been charged with her killing, though they're, you know, what, the officer who filed for the no-knock warrant has been put on, quote-unquote, administrative leave. Um, 
so I am looking to see what charges may come out of that case. I'm also interested in Senator Rand Paul introducing legislation that would ban the use of no-knock warrants. Mm. And I think that that's a moment in which libertarian-leaning conservatives and the Black Lives Matter movement more broadly can come together. Well, Jane Coaston, senior politics reporter at Vox with us from Washington. Jane, thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. And Greg Bluestein covers politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with us from Atlanta. Greg, it was great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Maria Reeve, managing editor for the Houston Chronicle with us from Houston. Maria, it was great to have you as well. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes featuring Mindy Luber, CEO of Ceres, a nonprofit dedicated to integrating sustainability into businesses. Here's host Kurt Nickish. Are the people who are working with ESG data now at companies, are they in a sustainability department? Does this just become part of general strategy or part of finance? How is that evolution happening with the actual people who are looking and working with the numbers? So with both companies and investors, the cute idea of social responsibility that was at a manager level or something their foundations dealt with, that's gone. It is very clear based on data, based on facts, based on trends, that integrating sustainability into the core business is crucial. I mean, you cannot have a climate goal that says we're going to get to a net zero by 2040 if every department at the enterprise is not working on that. That's your manufacturing people. It's your supply chain people. So we find that there is often a sustainability team. But they're laying out a plan that involves almost every enterprise, every office, every part of a firm. And that's what we're seeing because nobody can do the kind of cross-organizational work in one little group. It involves the entire team. It involves HR. Who are you hiring? Is DEI being implemented? How is that working? As it relates to where do you get your resources? Are there enough natural resources to make your product? What are the auto companies doing now that they've committed to by 2035, there will be no combustion engine vehicles coming off their assembly line for consumer vehicles. So sustainability is no longer a cute, a niche, a part of something off to the side. It is an integral part of almost every major enterprise and every major investor. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more about the Marotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.